Okay, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, please, for our reading in this session, 1 Corinthians 3. And we'll read from verse 10, please. Sorry, verse 9. For we are laborers together with God, ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. That will do for our reading. We trust with the Lord's blessing as we've read it together. Thinking about the judgment seat of Christ, and when you come to this second passage that speaks about it, The word I want to focus on is the word accountability. So we had integrity from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and the idea of accountability here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now Paul, as he's writing to this assembly in Corinth, in this section he uses three different pictures to describe the church of God the church of God at Corinth in context. And he will speak about a field from verse 5 down to verse number 9. And then he'll speak about a building from verse 9 down to verse number 15. And then he speaks about the temple in verses 16 to 17. We won't deal with all of them, but perhaps two or three we will deal with. Now the context, again, Uh, is so important, and by the way, context is always important when you come to a section of God's Word. Um, These sections don't exist in isolation. They're part of a letter, and so you need to get the context in which they're found to understand the meaning. And the context of this in 1 Corinthians is that in the assembly at Corinth, there were factions that had arisen. That is, there were groups of people within the fellowship, within the assembly, and they were distinct groups of people. And they were distinct in that they had made themselves distinct. And they had divided themselves up with contention and hostility and were kind of following some main men, somebody even claiming Christ, but they were dividing themselves into a kind of party political system within the local assembly. And these groups were being formed around about personality. And whenever that happens, then the outcome is always the same. You get conflict. 
That's what happened in Corinth. So you had personality-based conflict. Now, it's interesting to me that the personalities that they were gathering around were not actually principally responsible for the problem, certainly not the Lord Jesus, but those that were gathering around their name had attributed to them a status and a significance which was unbiblical. And even them gathering to the Lord Jesus as a group was indicating that others weren't. And so that's unbiblical. So they were all in an unbiblical situation. In fact, Paul says this at the beginning of chapter 3, for ye are yet carnal. And if you're not familiar with Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians, you would understand this, that there were Christians that were described as being spiritual, and they were Christians that were described as being carnal. And these carnal Christians were behaving as if they weren't Christians, that they were still in the natural sphere rather than the spiritual. And so they were indwelt with the Spirit of God, but behaving as if they weren't. And so they were behaving in a very fleshly way, and they're described as being carnal. And that fleshly um, way that they were acting is described by Paul in this way. He says, there is among you envying and strife and divisions. He says, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? And so, again, this is not unusual. This is a common situation. And it's common, not just within a local assembly, but amongst people in general, to identify with a big personality or a leader for whatever reason, and then end up being hostile to people who don't. So they are drawn towards usually the cult of personality, and then they become very hostile to people who don't share that view or don't share that adherence to that personality. That's all over the world. And you still see that today when people follow and identify so closely with a person who may well be teaching truth, but they identify with the person and end up denying the truth that is being taught. And this, of course, happens amongst religious people in particular in the world and also happens amongst Christians in local assembly. Now, in Corinth, politics, therefore, had entered into the local church. And they're acting like rival political parties um, rather than brothers and sisters in Christ. And what they did was this. They put Paul and Apollos and ultimately Christ in positions, but particularly Paul and Apollos, that were completely inappropriate, completely inappropriate, giving them status and significance that they should never have been given and they should never have made that decision. Now, the overarching truth of what he teaches in the bigger context is this. Christians are not lords. They are servants. And they are also servants whom God sovereignly assigns. That's the first thing. Secondly, as they serve, whoever they are, male and female, public or private, or everything in between public and private, not everything in between male and female, obviously, but everything in between public and private, you find this, 
that what they do, they do because God has called them to do that task, that service. So God sovereignly assigns his servants. He gifts them. He enables them. And he puts them into his service, providing for them opportunity to exercise their God-given gift. And then even beyond that, any blessing, anything good that comes out of that, again, is because the Lord blesses it. And it's the Lord who brings the fruit from the service. So you can see that they were way off beam by gathering themselves around about a person like Paul or a person like Apollos who may have been impressive. I think Apollos probably was a very impressive man to listen to. And Paul, you know, he may not have been impressive in appearance and in public delivery, but you'd, I mean, sitting listening to that man. And yet they had elevated these two worthy servants of the Lord, not to servanthood status, but to lordship status. And to do that is wrong. It was wrong then, and it is wrong now. It is wrong now. No matter who the servant is, no matter the service they fulfill, to elevate them from servanthood to lordship is wrong. And it supplants the place of Christ in the life of a Christian. Paul sums it up at the beginning of chapter 4 and verse 1. The Apostle Paul, the great man himself, so to speak, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ. He says, when you think about me, when you speak about me, when you interact with me, when you're in relationship with me, remember this. I am a servant of Christ. And he said beyond that, I am a steward of the mysteries of God. I am only handling what's been given to me by God to handle. And the great mysteries that he had been given to reveal. I think it's obviously why Paul says, you know, he had a thorn in the flesh and so on. And the significance that he could have had amongst the believers, he did not want. And so he is rebuking these Christians for doing that very thing. Now, as he teaches that, he uses these pictures. And the first one he uses is that of a field. So he says in verse number five, who then is, a, who then is Paul, who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. So Paul begins with two rhetorical questions, and it's just this, who then is Apollos, who is Paul, who are they? Uh, well, that's not who they were actually thought of by the saints at Corinth. But Paul says, who are they? The answer is quite simple. They are servants through whom you believed. That's who they are. That's all they are. Not saying that in a derogatory sense. That's an amazing thing to be that. But that still is what they are. They simply are serving God in the way that God called them to, handling what God has given them to handle and seeking to be faithful in that stewardship and discharge it with integrity before God. There's nothing greater for a servant to do than that. That's it. That's the high point. That's you really kind of reaching for the stars, so to speak. If you manage to handle what God gives you to handle and serve him as God would have you serve him and do it as a good steward with integrity, that's it. So he says, get this in your mind as we begin. 
Verse 5, he says, whenever you may think this is the reality, this is what Paul is, this is who Apollos is, they are servants through whom you believed, yes, but even as the Lord gave to every man. He then expands that service with this analogy in verse 6, and he says, this is how I served and how Apollos served. He says, in the context of the field, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So humbling, that last expression. You know, Paul, you are, you're planting me, so to speak, have appeared impressive, amazing, sensational. The stories you could tell, the books you could write, unbelievable. The things you experienced, the, the truth you conveyed, the fearless courage that you had in your service for the Lord, all of it, you imagine it. And Paul, you're planting away, you're planting with integrity, you're planting hard, courageously, you're serving God to the nth degree. There you are, you're planting. Fantastic. Apollos, you're in right behind him. Uh, and your service is complementary, not contradictory. And you're coming in behind Paul, not to usurp him, but actually to complement him. And your ministry is working and blending together. It's different. There's a different emphasis. Uh, and you are, you are watering what Paul has planted. Absolutely fantastic. What a team. But if you don't have the last expression in the verse, nothing grows. Nothing grows. It's God that gives the increase. So the planting may be sensational. The watering may be sensational. But it's actually God that gives the increase. Because they're serving God. God ultimately is the bestower of the blessing. When it comes to the, ex comes to the exercise of spiritual gift, he'll deal with this later in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when he speaks in a similar way about spiritual gifts. So he says this, God gives the increase. Now, just one or two little points as we move through this. Not main points, but just grasp this. Number one, they had different roles to fulfill within the work. It wasn't that one was better than the other. It wasn't that one was more important than the other. It wasn't that one supplanted the other, but they complemented each other and they served together differently. And then the blessing comes from the singular source. Therefore, who is of the utmost significance in this process? Seriously. Who matters most? It's not to say that the servants of God don't matter. Of course they matter because they are serving God. But who ultimately is of greatest importance? It is God. Let us never forget it. Seriously, let us never forget it. Now, in verses 8 down to verse 9, he continues to emphasize this point. So he says this. Now, he that planteth and he that watereth are one. I absolutely love that. There is something about unity in the service of God that is wholesome, there's a beauty about it, there is a, a sense of just it being right when you see it and are part of it, when people serve together. 
even although they are doing different things. You can see it in very practical senses in an assembly context, for this is what Paul is writing about in assembly context. And, you know, I'm not talking about the public ministry so much now, but in the service of the assembly, the most of which is not done publicly from a platform, but the complementary nature of serving together. And so there's no insignificant service rendered in an assembly. There's no insignificant role. There's not one role that has more value than another role. It is that we work together, complementing each other with the same significance in the service that's rendered. There's a beauty in that. It doesn't, I'm not going to de, kind of demean anything by naming things as if, oh, that is even as good as that, as if, you know, we're thinking it isn't. But just allow your mind to, to run over your own assembly and all that's done in the name of Christ in that assembly context. Think about it. There's so much. And so much of it not seen. So much of it done as it should be for the Lord without seeking glory and without seeking affirmation and praise from others. Just serving the Lord. And understanding that as you serve the Lord, you're serving together with others who are serving the Lord in their way. As they've been gifted, there's a harmony, there's a beauty. It removes selfishness and pride and it removes this whole idea of, of seeking um, adulation and position and all that kind of stuff flows out from a misunderstanding, or worse than that, of this basic point. As the Lord looks down upon his people, why do you think that person serves as they do and you serve as you do? It's because sovereignly, divinely, we have been fitted to serve him in a particular way. God made that choice, not me, not you. God determined that. God gifted us. God brings us into these situations and we need to serve and we need to serve together. Now, of course, there are examples of many people in the Bible who struggled with that, just as perhaps we struggle with it. But it's a glorious thing to see. There's a peace and a harmony and a settled. I don't think, maybe it's when you get older, you appreciate things a wee bit more. You know, when you're younger, you, you want things to be dramatic and all that kind of stuff. When you get older, you want things to be peaceful and calm. Um, but there is a beauty about harmony amongst the Lord's people. And we should value it greatly. And so he says this, he that planteth, he that watereth are one. But notice this, he says, and every man shall receive and Paul mentioned this, I think, in his prayer or his opening. Each man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. We work together. We are rewarded individually. We are assessed individually. This is a big thing, I think. It's all big, but there's an individuality of service within that unity as well. Each receive an appropriate reward from the Lord for their own labor. No one is rewarded for someone else's labor. And this was a problem, I think, because you see, in a situation like Corinth, where you gather under someone's name or someone's personality, there is that desire to get a bit of reflected glory or reflected status or reflected significance. You are one of them. There is no reward in being one of them. 
The reward lies in being who God has made you and how God has fitted you to serve and to serve faithfully in that context. And so the individuality of service and its assessment is mentioned here by Paul. They were grouping together under people. That should never be the case in a local assembly. We serve in harmony with each other, but we are individually accountable to the Lord for our service. Individuality of service. But notice, he then emphasizes the unity again. And he says, for we are laborers together. And then he says this, with God. With God. It is one thing for me to work with you and for you to work with me. But to know that we are working with God and he is working with us. Isn't that amazing? His field. We serve in it. But he also works with us and through us. I find that very sobering. And humbling to think that the things that we do in service that we are workers together with God and I think it elevates some of the things that we do for him takes away from a seeming insignificance seemingly humdrum run-of-the-mill act of service Laborers together with God. With God. So you have individuality of service, and then you have unity of service emphasized, and that unity is with God. The ESV says we are God's co-workers. So there's the field. And you've this idea of um, planting, watering, cultivating, and reaping a harvest in the field. Now you move on to this next picture in verses 9 down to verse 15. And he's now going to speak about the building. And this is where we come into the judgment seat of Christ. But So Paul shifts from agriculture, do you like this? Agriculture to architecture. And he's, he moves from one sphere into the other. And remember this, that he's going to teach them, again in the context of the local assembly, he's going to teach them about the importance of the character of our work. The character of our work. So you have this idea of the church, as I mentioned, being that in which um, planting takes place, watering takes place, cultivation, harvesting. Now you come to a building and you have his skilled, wise master builder and other laborers and they are working to build and the materials employed are significant. And these materials need to withstand the purifying assessment of our God, of our Lord. So let's look at this. What are we building? Here it is. You can't escape it. What are we building into our local assembly? Our local church. The church of God at Corinth in context. What are we building in? You could go far and near in this. You could start a way back if you're not even part of your local assembly. If you're freelancing, 
as a Christian. If it is the case that you are a Christian who has not committed themselves to the fellowship of a local church, of a local assembly, your status is an unfamiliar status when you come to the Bible. The Bible is anticipating throughout the whole of the New Testament that those who are Christians, that they will gather together with other Christians in a local assembly and commit to that and serve the Lord within that context and within their community. That is the norm. That's the anticipation. And so we could start way back there, and that would be helpful, but I'm not going to start, start way back there. But if it is the case that you are in a local assembly, as we should be, then we have the opportunity to build into that, to render our service for the Lord in that context and see God at work in that context. Fantastic opportunity. So he uses this picture. And he begins by saying this in verse number 10. Well, verse 9, he says, Ye are God's building. Then he says this, According to the grace of God, which is given unto me, that is the Apostle Paul, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. Now, remember, he said in the field picture, he said, I planted and Apollos watered. Now he's saying in the building metaphor, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. So you have a progress in both pictures. One building upon the other, so to speak. Now he mentions here a foundation. Now I know nothing of building, literally nothing. But Paul was a person usually involved at the foundation level of a local church. He was someone who felt, certainly expressed it, that his particular service for the Lord would take him into places where the gospel had not gone before. And to teach the basic fundamental doctrines of Christ, to establish the foundation of that local church. So for, in Corinth, for example, in Corinth, he stayed for 18 months. In Ephesus, he stayed for three years. Thessalonica, we don't know. We only have a month as far as we know, but likely in terms of what they understood, in terms of what he wrote to them thereafter, probably more than that. And he went to areas and he brought the gospel, but he didn't just seek to make converts. He sought to make disciples because that's where the Great Commission is. And he taught them. He didn't just preach the gospel to them and leave them. He taught them and he taught them the doctrines of Christ. Christ was the foundation. And he says it was according to the grace of God. And the fulfillment of that role was according to the grace of God. He was gifted, enabled, empowered, all of God's grace. That's what he did. And he says this, actually, I am a wise master builder. And I like that because, you know, in Corinth they loved wisdom, but it wasn't this wisdom. And they thought of Paul as a fool and themselves as being wise. He says, no, I am a skillful. I am a wise master builder. Basically, I know what I'm doing here. The grace of God in my life is such, I know what I'm doing. And I know what I've done. And I have laid a foundation that's appropriate and accurate and correct. And that foundation is Jesus Christ. 
which is interesting. How you have described the foundation of a local church. Paul says it's Jesus Christ. It is, yes, the doctrines he taught, Jesus Christ. And that foundation of Christ, of Jesus Christ, is the foundation which he says was actually laid by a wise master builder. This wasn't a mistake. This is as it should have been. And it's a, as it should always be. Jesus Christ. You know, when we lose that, we lose the true foundation. And we can get our eyes onto a whole lot of other stuff, which in and of itself may well be good and all that kind of thing. But you know, the truth of it is just this. Paul says, the foundation is Jesus Christ. And he says this, I am a wise master builder. That's the word from which we get architect from. But it's not the way we use architect. I don't know many architects who get dirt under their nails. This is the idea of the architect who not only designed, but also got his hands dirty in building. Paul was there and he was down there preaching. He was teaching. And you can see the sorts of things he taught right throughout this epistle. Things that he reminded them about. But things that are all connected to Jesus Christ. And his person and doctrine. You know, even think about contentious things nowadays to do with headship. Headship is, is, you cannot separate headship from Jesus Christ. It exalts Christ. It puts him where he should be, either symbolically or even, you know, beyond the symbolism from that of which the symbolism speaks. It speaks about, you know, Christ as head and so on. And it's just an illustration that these doctrines are not separate from Christ. So he says, listen, he said, I was there, I was preaching, I was teaching, as I've said, 18 months. I laid that foundation for that local assembly. Now he says, another built upon it. So there was more to be taught, there was more to be done, there was more service to be rendered. And Apollos comes and he builds and he teaches. And this is a recognition that the establishment of a local assembly as it should be is not a one-man job. Paul knows he needed help. There were other gifts that complemented his and it was required here for the establishment and for the growth upon that stable foundation that was laid. Now listen, growth requires stability. And that stability is Christ. And growth requires to be consistent with that foundation. So here's the challenge. Paul says, let every man take heed how he builds upon. Probably a direct warning, indeed, a direct warning to folks in Corinth who were teaching what was inconsistent and required corrected in these epistles, what was inconsistent with the foundation there at Corinth. And the truth of it was just this, it's a warning to be very, very careful how you build and what you build into your local assembly. It has to be consistent with the foundation, and that's the building metaphor there. And that foundation is Christ. Wearsby in his book, Be Wise, says this, the foundation is the most important part of the building because it determines the size, shape, and strength of the superstructure. A ministry may seem to be successful for a time, 
But if it's not founded in Christ, it will eventually collapse and disappear. That's a telling thing. He is the only foundation upon which a building for God can be built. No other foundation. Now, in terms of building upon that foundation in Corinth, Paul is going to challenge the believers. Paul's there. Apollos has come. Others have been there. The foundation is laid. It's Christ. The doctrines have been taught and practiced. Some of the significance of the practices have been lost and they need to be reminded and retaught. But the foundation is there. The building has taken shape. Now others are building into that building. You, know, you can't push the metaphor really too far, but you get the idea. And people are building upon that foundation. Now the question that Paul has is just this, what is the character of what you are building upon that foundation? What's the character of it? So he speaks about the materials within the building metaphor, and he says in verse number 12, for, or now if any man build upon this foundation, so the foundation's good, it's not an issue. Now you're building upon it. What are you building upon? So he says, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. Different types of materials built upon the right foundation. Now I don't think the Apostle Paul intends us to read these materials and have a whole allegorical thing going on here. I don't think you should take these materials really in context and apply them into the Old Testament tabernacle and temple and all sorts of long sermons about that. The point, I think, is singular. The point is that some building materials are of such character and value that they can stand the test of fire. Others will be burned up and destroyed. The point is the valuable value and durability of the materials which have been built upon that foundation. Gold, silver, precious stones. The precious stones we understand being the big building blocks of the temple or of the building. That's the imagery. That which is precious and durable or the wood, hay, stubble, which is the opposite. It is not precious, neither is it durable when the fire comes upon it. Fire being the picture of divine assessment and judgment. So you see the picture. Get the picture. So the picture is actually explained as he goes on. And he says this in verse number 13. <clears throat> Excuse me. He says, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it. So he says the true character of what you build into a local assembly at that day of assessment will be laid bare. What a thought. What a thought. The stuff, the things, the time spent, the money given, the work done, the labor rendered, you name it, all of it in relation to the local assembly, subject to assessment and the fire of divine assessment. The day shall declare it. This is the judgment seat of Christ referred to actually in chapter 4 and verse 5 Again, referred to, and I've already mentioned that, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come. And the idea of fire here is not damnation. The idea is that which will combust the combustible. So the key is this. The fire of divine assessment will make 
explain and expose the character and quality of our work in the local assembly. And then he says this in verse 14. If any man's work abide. If. If. There's a possibility that none of our work will abide. So he says if it does abide, subject to that divine scrutiny, he shall receive a reward. Now this is the image in my mind. You stand at the judgment seat of Christ. The picture is of a building. Local assembly in Bridge of Weir. Been there 40 years in fellowship now. Can't believe it. 40 years in fellowship. And 40 years of my life associated with that assembly. If I was to, taking the analogy and using myself as an illustration, if I was to construct a pile of work rendered within that context... It'd probably be quite big. It's 40 years after all. There's a lot of stuff. I wonder when the fire comes upon it, whether it'll be turned into ash. Literally. Turned into ash. As I described the bonfire of my vanities at the judgment seat of Christ. This verse tells me that's a distinct possibility. Make no mistake. In contrast, it could well be, just using my own self's analogy, put yourself in there as I'm speaking. It could well be that there is the work rendered over here and the fire comes upon it and it is of such character and value that as the assessment passes over it, it abides. It's still there. So you have that which goes and is lost. The key word being lost. That which is lost and that which remains. That which is rewarded and that which is not. What a challenge. What a challenge. You see, I've served the Lord in my assembly for X number of years. I've just said the same thing. And I used 40 as the number. And feel quite smug and self-satisfied about it. Maybe I did as I said it to you there, 40 years. And the truth of it is just this. It could be 40 years of nothing. Burned. Gone. He says this. Take heed how you build upon. I wondered about examples of what will survive that fire from the Bible. I've got a few to give to you. It's maybe just a kind of selection of what is in the Bible. Well, it is. It's only a selection. Here's one. Anything done for the glory of God, even simple tasks. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever, whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. 
The fire comes upon that. That abides. That stays. It's done for the glory of God. Whatever it is. Humble servanthood. Matthew 20, verse 26. But Jesus called them unto him and said, you know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them and they that are great exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your servant. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Humble servanthood abides. Significant sacrificial, not significant, excuse me, sacrificial giving abides. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 and 7, But this I say, He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. He which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. Here it is, for God loveth a cheerful giver. That remains. Suffering for righteousness' sake in the workplace or whatever. First Peter 3, verses 19 to 20. This is in the workplace. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it when ye be buffeted for your faults? You shall take it patiently. You suffer because of the person and kind of annoying person you are. And the person who's doing all sorts of ridiculous stuff and you suffer as a consequence, you say, it's all for the glory of God. No, it's not. It's because you're ridiculous and you're annoying and you're not doing your job properly and stuff like that. That's why you're suffering. He says, but if it's, if it's actually for conscience toward God, when ye do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. That abides. Fire comes on it passes over it, it's still there. You haven't lost it. Advancing the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 19. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing, Paul says to the Thessalonians, are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. Paul says, those who are one for Christ, as we sought to further the gospel, the people out your street, the people in your workplace, the people in your family, the people whose testimony, who your testimony impacted that you don't even know. And you get to the glory and you find this, it stands. It stands. You don't lose that. Anything done to help other Christians. Seems a bit basic, doesn't it? Hebrews 6 verse 10, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which you have showed towards his name in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. There it is, serving the saints. It abides. Last one, and there are many more. 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 11 to 12, Study to be quiet to do your own business, to work with your own hands 
as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. An honorable life of hard work. That abides. That abides. You get the point? You stand at the judgment seat of Christ. You don't need to guess. You don't need to imagine. You look at the Bible and you discover that which draws the pleasure of God, that which is sanctified and holy and pure with integrity, all these things. And that's the sort of thing that abides. What doesn't abide? Pride, arrogance, sin, selfishness, division, carnality, unholiness, ungodliness, whatever, on that whole idea what happens to that? It goes. You lose it all. Lost. Those years, that money, those relationships, that effort, all of that stuff tainted by sin and by arrogance and by pride and by all sorts of other things that change the character of it from being significant and of value to not being that. And when the fire comes upon it, you're standing there and you're standing in a field of ash. You're not burned. This isn't purgatory. The fire doesn't test you. It tests your work. Those that believe in purgatory would tell you that the fire tests you. The Bible says it tests your work, not you. And the work is tested and fails. And so it says in verse 15, if any man's work shall be burnt, he shall suffer loss. Loss of what? Loss of your soul? Loss of your salvation? No. The fact of the matter is, everything you bring to that judgment seat of Christ, if it is burnt, you lose it all. That which abides, abides. And is recompensed and rewarded. The stuff you lose is gone. There is no reward. The picture is of a man who's rescued out of a burning building and has only time to save himself, so to speak, or only time to be saved, to use the kind of right analogy. And he comes out there and all his stuff is left in the fire. And he stands there with nothing more than the clothes he's in. It's all he's got. That's the picture of the man standing before Christ. Saved so as by fire. And you stand there, and yeah, you're saved. But you have lost a lifetime of service. And so it is no wonder, I think, that Paul says this, remember accountability. Remember this, that all of our work in a local assembly context requires to bear the character of the foundation in order for it to have value and abide in the day of assessment. I tell you this, that is one way, that's the lens you should look through things. That is the, that's the prism, if you like, through which something should be decided upon or assessed by you in relation to what you put into a local assembly, in whatever role you have in that assembly, in whatever sphere you have. Is it consistent with the foundation? And if it's not consistent with that foundation of Christ, as the doctrines of Christ in our Bible, then it has no value in the ultimate. 
And the good thing is this. That assessment will be made by the Lord in a coming day. Let us take heed to ourselves first and foremost rather than hunt out a speck in someone else's eye and make sure that our eyes are upon the Lord and that we're building in keeping with the foundation of any local assembly, which is Jesus Christ. Trust the Lord will bless his word to us. Let's just pray and we'll give thanks for the food we're about to enjoy. Father, we just give thanks again for the challenge of these scriptures. It causes us to shudder a little bit as we think about it and as we reflect upon service rendered over many years for some of us. And our Father, we think of what is done for Christ. Help us, our Father, to serve in a way that reflects our appreciation that one day we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We're thankful for everyone here for the time taken to be under the sound of thy word. Speak to us, we pray, by thy spirit, through thy word. And we pray that there is give increase in this gathering, we ask of thee. We give thanks for food, for those who have served in the provision of it and will serve in the distribution of it. Help them to do so and help us to be helped to them as well, we pray, as we ask and give thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.